Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast, our 125th this time. Today, by popular demand, don't tell me I never serve the people, we're going to take a look at another eminent and distinguished person from Chinese history. Many of you, especially anyone who has read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, uh, know of uh, Zhuge Liang. I'm sure he's on the list of the all-time top 20 best-known Chinese people from history. But not everyone knows who he is and why he's so renowned. So in today's episode, we'll sort out the life and times of a man whose name has become synonymous with strategy, cleverness. The period we're looking at this time is the end of the Han Dynasty and the Three Kingdoms period that followed. Some of this will be rehash from CHB past episodes 20 and 22 that covered the Eastern Han Part 3 and the Three Kingdoms. That really was a fabled time in Chinese history. The Three Kingdoms period has been romanticized and fictionalized to an extent by Luo Guanzhong's 14th century novel. As usual, all we have for source material is often, at best, a bola, shi fan, or thin gruel. With the exception of archaeological evidence uncovered from time to time, the lion's share of the history of this period comes down to us from four of the so-called 24 histories, the Arshasushir. These are the official chronicles that covered everything from the Han to the Ming. Now, just because they were the official versions of what happened doesn't necessarily mean the contents were totally true. The four books in particular that reveal the history of Zhuge Liang's time are the San Guo Zhi, written by Chen Shou, and of course the Shi Ji from uh, Sima Qian, the records of the Grand Historian. Besides these two big ones, there are the books of Han and later Han, so a total of four. And the San Guo Zhi, the records of the Three Kingdoms, that book was broken down into three books, one for each kingdom, the Book of Wei, the Book of Shu, and of Wu. So many names from this era, but all of them are important. As I always do, any of the Chinese names and places mentioned in this and almost all episodes will be noted on my website. So if you get blown away by all the names in this or or any episode, go to my website and I tried to sort everything out for you. The Three Kingdoms period is a 60-year period from 220 to 280 that acted as a buffer in between the fall of the Han Dynasty and the establishment of the Jin Dynasty. Its impact on Chinese culture was a lot longer lasting than the brief six decades of the San Guoshi Dai, or the Three Kingdoms period. But let's step back a bit and look at what else was happening in the world when Zhuge Liang was serving as prime minister of the Shu state, advising his king on the best strategy to unite China under his rule. This was the first three decades of the 3rd century AD, the 200s. Christianity, of course, was just beginning to get some traction. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had already come and gone just over a century where this new religion was going. It was hard to say at that time. It would make its way to China in about 13 centuries. Nicaea was still a century away. This was the 
time of Septimius Severus and Caracalla in ancient Rome. So Commodus had, had just happened, and Rome sort of turned a corner at that point. Not for the better. This is when Parthia fell and the Sassanid Empire rose. This was three and a half centuries before the time of the prophet Muhammad. So the early 3rd century Sassanids were mostly Zoroastrians. The Silk Road was flourishing, having been in existence already for over three centuries. The Han Dynasty lasted a long time, and a lot of the political and governmental foundations built during the preceding Qing Dynasty were enhanced and improved during the Han. The Han Dynasty rulers, all surnamed Liu, who followed the founder, Liu Bang, truly had a nice long run, pretty much almost up to the Yellow Turban Rebellion that began in 184 AD. The Liu family of the Han Dynasty reigned during a very productive and rich period in Chinese history. Once the Yellow Turbans rose up, the word on the street was that the imperial mandate enjoyed by the Liu family was not so certain. These military men loyal to the Han Emperor were called in and were tasked to deal with this yellow turban menace. And as they almost always did, these military strongmen, once the mission was accomplished, would get a little whiff of power, and there were always at least a few who felt they could knock the emperor off and take over the throne themselves. And these were the times that Zhuge Liang was born into. This is what the end of the Han, or the Eastern Han, was all about. The yellow turbans rose up in 184, thanks to floods, famine, oppressive taxes, and a weak emperor. All it took was for a charismatic leader, such as Zhang Jiao, to come along with some far-out Taoist teaching to stir up the the you-know-what. So, the Yellow Turban Rebellion, as history records, that pretty much did it for the Eastern or later Han Dynasty. The rebellion was later put down in 205, but the days of battle and contention did not end. From the end of the Yellow Turban Rebellion in 205, all the way up to, well, about the 6th century, China had a hard way to go. Although there will be a brief respite when China is unified for 50 years under the Jin Dynasty, once the Eastern or later Jin begins in 317, there follows a couple rough-and-tumble centuries before the Sui Dynasty heralds the dawn of a new age in China. So, it's out of this Yellow Turban Rebellion that this whole thing begins. That was the historical event that spawned this tale. Our hero, Zhuge Liang, was born in 181 AD. My... New Zealand listeners will, of course, remember that year as the time when the volcano that formed Lake Taupo last blew. He came from Shandong province, born in present-day Yinan County, for which Linyi is the county seat. This is the southern part of Shandong, not too far from the border with northernmost Jiangsu. Zhuge Liang came from a long line of scholar officials, but was by no means an aristocrat himself. Young Zhuge Liang was orphaned at an early age and fell into the care of his uncle, Zhuge Xuan, who worked for one of the several warlords contending for supremacy during the last decades of the Eastern Han. Ladies and gentlemen, the word 
complicated simply does not describe this period in Chinese history enough. It is a major endeavor to sort out the dozens and dozens of names who were all fighting against each other during the period when Zhuge Liang was growing up. The Han Emperor Ling and his court, entirely dominated by eunuchs, by the way, had to call in a lot of these local warlords to deal with the yellow turban problem. Some of these military men didn't amount to too much, but some did. Zhuge Liang's first 20 years are flooded with the names of these generals and warlords. And the big names, of course, uh, Dong Zhuo, Lü Bu, Liu Biao, Yuan Shao, Yuan Shu, Huang Zhu, Sun Jian, Deng Ai, Sima Yi, Sun Tzu, Zhou Yu, Guan Yu, who we featured in CHP episode 81, Zhang Fei, and of course, Cao Cao and Liu Bei. All these men were around when Zhuge Liang was growing up. Sun Quan, however, he was born a, a year after Zhuge Liang. But those are some of the more important names as the Eastern Han began to wind down and breathe its last. And with those names, I'm only, I'm only just getting started. Trust me when I say the list goes on. There was this three-decade period that basically ran the entirety of the Xian Emperor's reign. He was a good example of, a, of an emperor who, who reigned but never ruled. I was questioning about how much detail to get into about those years from 190 to 230. It's almost a bottomless pit of names, battles, and outcomes involving names of provinces that don't exist anymore. And so many characters change sides. I was thinking... Most of you probably don't have the stomach for that. I'm not kidding. Even if you're fluent in Chinese, this is a lot of names to keep track of. Thanks to his uncle, uh, Zhuge Xuan, Zhuge Liang in 197 ended up having the good fortune to end up in the city of Nanyang in Henan. It was known then as Wancheng. This today medium-sized city of over 10 million inhabitants has a long and rich history that I won't get into right now. For the purposes of today's episode, during the Eastern Han, there was this relative of the emperor in Luoyang, and his relative was based in Nanyang, and he was able to use his relationship with the emperor to really spiff up the place and make it the second best place to be in China, short of actually living in the capital, Luoyang. If you couldn't live in Luoyang, Nanyang was the place. This is late second century China. Nanyang and its by river and Beautiful landscape was a rather cultured place to live, and it attracted the attention of many artists and literati of the day. And this is where Zhuge Liang grew up, and he never lacked for teachers or role models. His main teacher was Sima Hui, a.k.a. Shui Jing, a man known not to suffer fools and whose word could be trusted. Sima Hui soon is going to be the one who recommends to Liu Bei, that he seek out Zhuge Liang, and he acts as the famous go-between. Chinese speakers might be interested to know it's from, or supposedly it's from Sima Hui, that we get the, the Chengyu, a, a hao hao xianxiang. As the story goes, Sima Hui, you know, always replied, no matter what you said, he'd always go, ah, ha 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 and, you know, whatever you told him. So he became known as a hao hao xianxiang which is someone who always says, yeah, 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 good, okay, okay, someone who agrees with whatever you say. Anyways, word on the street is, that came from Sima Hui, probably from his wife. 
After his uncle passed away when he was 17, Zhuge Liang lived in relative seclusion on his farm in Longzhong in Nanyang. Because of his wisdom, cleverness, and the way he hid all his talents where no one could find him, living in a hut like a simple farmer, he acquired the nickname Warlong, or Crouching Dragon. It was his choice to live this quiet and secluded life rather than allow himself to be controlled by any of these contending warlords. He had famously married the daughter of one of the local scholars in Nanyang named Huang Chengyan. Huang's daughter, who we know as Lady Huang, but whose name might have been Huang Yueying, history records that Lady Huang was notoriously not good-looking, but fortunately for both of them, Zhuge Liang was attracted to brains rather than looks. She was supposedly his equal in almost all things related to brain power, and they were very devoted to each other. It's said she was the brains behind a few of the achievements he's remembered for. By the 190s, Cao Cao was pretty much the largest power center in China. His victories over the yellow turbans had made him. And he also had control of the Han Emperor's Xian and sort of had this hapless royal under his care. Nudge, nudge. Since the Yellow Turban Rebellion, Liu Bei had served under Cao Cao, but in 199, Liu Bei and Cao Cao irrevocably parted ways. Liu Bei didn't fare well lined up against Cao Cao. He was often defeated, and those years from 200 onward, Cao Cao steadily built up his power, but, you know, always behind the facade of the Han Dynasty. So, from ages 17 to 27, Zhuge Liang lived this reclusive life in Nanyang, while all around him, all these warlords and their minions were waging battle all over northern and eastern China. Then, one day, the fateful moment came, and Liu Bei calls on Zhuge Liang. Remember, Sima Hui had recommended uh, that he go meet this guy. This is in the year 207. By now, Cao Cao was ruling with an iron fist and controlled all of North China. Again, it was Zhuge Liang's teacher, Sima Hui, a.k.a. Shui Jing, who brags to Liu Bei about how great Zhuge Liang is. And Liu Bei's two closest comrades you know, accompanied him to Nanyang to seek out this, this Zhuge Liang. These were, of course, Zhang Fei and Guan Yu. Now, these two, along with their leader, Liu Bei, had long before, you know, had already taken that oath to become sworn brothers at that peach garden. Actually, that probably never took place, but that's what it says in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. So they were very close. By the way, I was listening to that old Three Kingdoms episode, and I realized I was pronouncing Luo Guanzhong as Liu Guanzhong. And after all this time, no one sent me any hate mail. I'll fix that one of these days. So anyway, these two aide-de-camps of Liu Bei were naturally quite skeptical about everything they were hearing about Zhuge Liang. Yeah, right. How can this guy be as great as Sima Hui said he was? You know, it bothered them that their boss, Liu Bei, was so keen on meeting Zhuge Liang. You know, both Zhang Fei and Guan Yu had been thinking, you know, after all this time, what were they? Chopped liver? Not only Sima Hui, but others he had trusted, said to Liu Bei that he must meet this so-called Wolong, also known by his courtesy name of Kongming. So now you've heard three names. His personal name was Zhuge Liang. Zhuge was his surname. 
to one of those compound Chinese surnames like Ouyang, Situ, Sima, Shangguan, etc. His courtesy name was Kongming. This was also called a style name. I think I may have introduced this before in a previous podcast. When men turned 20 years old, they took on what's known as a zi, or courtesy name. The reason for this was that according to the Book of Rights, the Li Ji, it wasn't considered courteous for a man to refer to someone of his generation by their personal name. Therefore, when a guy turned 20, he had what was known as a capping ceremony and was either given or selected for himself a style or courtesy name that you know, maybe reflected some of his traits or traits that he imagined he had. Your personal name was strictly reserved for use by your family you know, or those who were senior to you. So Zhuge Liang is known as Warlong and also Kongming when Liu Bei called on him. He had to call on him three times because Zhuge Liang himself was testing Liu Bei, denying him an audience two times before he finally agrees to see him on the third visit. And you can imagine what Zhang Fei and Guan Yu were saying. Who is this guy not given face to, to their lord Liu Bei? Who is this, this nobody, Kongming, dissing Han royalty like Liu Bei? making him come three times before he agrees to see him. You see, Liu Bei, he was surnamed Liu, and he was related to the Liu family, who had ruled China as Han emperors since Liu Bang founded the dynasty in 202 BC. He was squarely lined up against Cao Cao, who, you know, now prime minister of Han, you know, had a hammerlock on the north of China and had his sights on Jingzhou. Liu Bei was trying to put his dream team together, and that was why he was so intent on meeting Zhuge Liang. As the story goes, Liu Bei had to tell Guan Yu and Zhang Fei to knock it off with their negative comments about Zhuge Liang. So they had their meeting, and at this fateful encounter, Zhuge Liang unveiled his Longzhong plan, the Longzhong Dui. This, my friends, was the whole playbook to establish the state of Shu, in the west, mainly where Sichuan lies. Zhuge Liang presented his strategy to Liu Bei in which he called for a base to be set up that could rival Cao Cao in the north and that of Sun Quan in the east. The Longzhong plan of Zhuge Liang called for a rival third state to be established in the west from which Liu Bei would, in time, use as his base from which to restore the Han rulers to power. Zhuge Liang's strategy first called for an alliance with Sun Quan's kingdom in the east, and the two allies would join together to defeat the much stronger Cao Cao in the north. Then, after this was accomplished, and of course Sun Quan wasn't told this part of the plan, once there were only two kings left standing, Liu Bei and Sun Quan, the Coupe de Grasse would be an attack by Liu Bei on Sun Quan, and then once this was completed successfully... China would be unified again under the legitimate Han rulers, of which Liu Bei considered himself one. So after Zhuge Liang gives him all the details about how to carry this out, Liu Bei makes him his advisor, and it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. The next year, in 208, after suffering a massive loss to Cao Cao at Changban, west of Wuhan, Liu Bei sends Zhuge Liang as his emissary to the Wu state to make a deal with Sun Quan. And these two guys, Zhuge Liang and Sun Quan, are about the same age. 
Zhuge Liang's brother, by the way, worked for Sun Quan. So that's a whole other sidebar to this meeting between Zhuge Liang and Sun Quan in 208. You know the story. Zhuge Liang meets with the great Sun Quan and convinces the warlord of China's rich and lush Jiangnan region that he should ally with Liu Bei to stop Cao Cao in his tracks. Combined, they total about 50,000 soldiers versus Cao Cao's army of over 240,000, which Cao Cao boasted was in excess of 800,000. The climax, of course, is the Battle of Red Cliff in the cold of winter, 208-209 AD, a huge defeat for Cao Cao, but by no means a knockout punch. In the aftermath of the Battle of Red Cliffs, Liu Bei firmly established himself in the West, but from 209 onwards, pretty much for the remainder of Zhuge Liang's life, it was one battle after another with these three kingdoms brawling with each other. Zhuge Liang served Liu Bei's Shu state loyally all the way up to the end. His first major appointment came when Liu Bei put Zhuge Liang in control of a few commanderies, or Jun as they were called, sort of like a prefect, uh, all the action up till now for Zhuge Liang was happening in the ancient province of Jing, or Jingzhou. Back in the day, Jingzhou would have made up the areas where roughly today Hubei and Hunan provinces are located. After that, he was made a governor of another ancient province, Yi, that doesn't exist anymore, but that's the area where Sichuan is today. Essentially, Liu Bei sent him from post to post, and wherever he went... Zhuge Liang governed wisely and effectively. In 217, Liu Bei had entrusted Zhuge Liang with defending Chengdu, the city that would one day be the capital of the Shu Han kingdom. Zhuge Liang became sort of a, a d'Artagnan to the three musketeers of Liu Bei, Zhang Fei, and Guan Yu. These four made up the core of Liu Bei's innermost circle. All the while, as they were carving out their kingdom to the west, their armies would have battle after battle with the forces led by Cao Cao. At the end of 219, Guan Yu would meet his bloody end in Maicheng in Hubei. By now, Liu Bei had declared himself king of Shu Han. His alliance with Sun Quan was severed, and Sun Quan will then seize Jing province back under his control, adding it to his eastern kingdom. The next year, Cao Cao will die of natural causes, and his son, Cao Pi, will take over. The first thing Cao Pi did when all formalities were over was to force the Xian Emperor to abdicate. This is in 220 AD. And that, my good-looking listeners, is the date that the history books call the official end of the Han Dynasty. The last decades of the Eastern Han were a far cry from the good old days uh, under Han Wu Di. So, in 220 AD, the Three Kingdoms period begins, and just as this period name suggests, you have three kingdoms. Cao Wei to the north, Sun Wu to the east, and Liu Bei's Shu Han to the west. They all try to knock each other off, and all three go to all kinds of heroic and outrageous lengths to outmaneuver each other, and in doing so, ultimately, unifying China under their rule. Liu Bei made Zhuge Liang his prime minister, or chancellor, as soon as he declared himself Shu Han's Zhao Liet. 
In 221, soon after this happened, Zhang Fei was then killed. In April of 223, Liu Bei up and died. His son Liu Shan becomes the new king, and Zhuge Liang loyally served him, as he did for Liu Bei. He served the new king in the capital, managing the affairs of state for the Shu Han kingdom. History records he was a brilliant prime minister, and the country was well-managed. Liu Shan treated Zhuge Liang like a respected elder. He made Zhuge Liang the Wu Xianghou, the Marquis of Wu, another name to add to Zhuge Liang's collection. In addition to Liu Bei's death in 223, a number of his best generals also perished in that year. And this punched a big hole in the top leadership of the Shu military machine. By 224-225, Sun Quan was trying to patch things up with Zhuge Liang. Cao Pi's forces were really putting some major heat on the kingdom of Wu. Although they hadn't been successful in defeating the Sun Wu, they kept coming at them. And no deal would be struck until Zhuge Liang sent an emissary to speak with Sun Quan. But then suddenly in 226, Cao Pi died. And with the death of that ruler, Zhuge Liang believed this would create a weakness up in Cao Wei. So he began planning for the military campaigns that he would lead personally and which would be among his signature achievements. These were the five northern campaigns. When the first one commenced in 227, they were meant to do to Cao Wei what Jiang Kai-shek did with the northern warlords 1,700 years later. In 225, he had just begun his southern campaign to quell disturbances down near Yunnan. He personally led the expeditions to successfully pacify the south. Once Liu Bei died, you know, the powers down near present-day Yunnan figured the time was ripe to rebel and break away. However, they got a little too big for their britches, and Zhuge Liang went down there and put down the revolt. He's going to find out the armies of Cao Wei were a whole other kettle of fish and not so easy to defeat. In the winter of 228, there followed the second northern expedition, and the third in the following year. In 229, Sun Quan declared himself Emperor of Wu. So now it was Cao Rei on the throne in Wei in the north, Liu Shan reigned in Shu Han, and Sun Quan, the only one left of the original three, now declared himself emperor of his Wu state. Zhuge Liang's fourth northern campaign in 231 is particularly noteworthy as it's recorded that the so-called wooden ox, an invention associated with Zhuge Liang, was used for the first time. This contraption had been likened to a, a kind of wheelbarrow that was used to transport supplies. This was 2nd and 3rd century AD. The world moves slow. The Wu Jing Zongyao is still more than half a millennium away. Gunpowder was way off in the distance still. These were times of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Swords, arrows, spears, and fire. The weapon of mass destruction of its day may have been the re repeating crossbow. We'll get to that in a moment. In 234, during Zhuge Liang's fifth and final northern offensive, the great strategist died at Wu Zhangyuan, facing off against a formidable nemesis named Sima Yi of his five offenses launched from Jing and Yi provinces, the heart of Shu Han. Between 228 and 234, only one succeeded. 
the Cao Wei general Sima Yi was credited mostly with fending off these offenses personally led by Zhuge Liang. And it's the prestige he gained for his family that later led to Sima Yi's grandson, Sima Yan, going on to unite China, not under Cao Wei, but founding his own dynasty instead, the Jin. That's fourth tone, Jin. Upon his death, the son of Liu Bei, Liu Shan, gave Zhuge Liang another title and a name by which he was also known, Zhong Wu Ho, or Loyal and Warlike Marquis. Zhong means loyal and Wu means martial, as in Han Wu Di. The Tang poet Du Fu wrote of Zhuge Liang, Zhuge's great name hangs over the whole world. The revered statesman's portrait awes with its sublimity. The empire carved into thirds, hindered his designs. Yet he soars through the ages, a lone feather in the sky. He is brother to such greats as Yi Yin and Lu Shan. If he had established control, Xiao and Cao would be forgotten. But the cycle had passed. Han fortunes could not be restored. His military strategy a failure. His hopes dashed. His body perished. The Shu state would eventually fall in 263, 29 years after Zhuge Liang's death. So historically, this is what we remember Zhuge Liang for. He was the brains behind the formation of the kingdom of Shu Han. His administrative, military, and diplomacy skills made Liu Bei a major contender and made his Shu kingdom a formidable foe. Zhuge Liang continued to build up the Shu Han state, and even after the death of his king, Liu Bei, he continued to serve the son, Liu Shan, and led troops into battle, clinging to the hope that he might one day rightfully restore the Han dynasty to power. But Zhuge Liang is a rather complicated character. You see, in the fictionalized account of this period, told in Luo Guanzhong's book, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Zhuge Liang is really praised put on a pedestal and immortalized. So the historic truth about who he was and what he did and the legends, mostly created by Luo Guanzhong, have sort of been mashed together. A lot of stuff is credited to Zhuge Liang and it's anyone's guess whether any of it or none of it is historic fact. But Zhuge Liang, the legend, his whole persona, all the things that were attributed to him, that's why his star still burns brighter than thousands of other bright objects from Chinese history. I didn't mention this yet, but he had this look about him. He attired and accessorized himself in a certain kind of way. He always dressed in the robes of a Taoist priest, and he could always be seen carrying a fan made from either the feathers of a crane or of a goose. I read two versions. He was always shown in paintings wearing this particular headdress. I'm not sure what it was. I think it was it was called a juka jin and, and the fan. It was a fan of feathers attached to a, a stick that he, you know, often used like a laser pointer, you know, kind of an instrument. What was Zhuge Liang known for? How do Chinese scholars and common folk look at him? What is his name associated with? Well, most of all, his name was associated with strategy in war and politics. Just as with the wisdom contained in the more famous Art of War by Sun Tzu, 
the strategies introduced by Zhuge Liang could be applied to non-military situations as well, particularly to politics and the corporate world. One of Zhuge Liang's most famous writings that survived to this day is the 36 Stratagems, the San Shi Liu Ji. Stratagems are more about deception and trickery, and a stratagem isn't the same as strategy. But more than a strategist who left behind an admirable track record and plenty of writings, because of his service to Liu Bei in building the kingdom of Shu Han, he was also known as a great politician and statesman as well. In addition to that, Zhuge Liang is also remembered for his skills as a diplomat, astrologist, astronomer, calligrapher, painter, musician, and as a great innovator and inventor. I already mentioned that he's credited with inventing this particular kind of transport vehicle called the wooden ox, or munyo. This was only one of the many things that are said to have originated with Zhuge Liang, or with his amazingly clever wife. It's said she came up with a few of these ideas and contraptions. What else did he invent? He invented kites, landmines. He also invented this contraption called the floating horse that was some kind of grain transport vehicle. He designed all kinds of infantry military formations that were used for a long time in the ancient world. The Kongming Lantern was named after him. This was a paper lantern that utilized the same principles as hot air balloons. A small flame at the base of an enclosed paper lantern would heat the air inside the lantern and the paper would float up into the sky. This was used as a kind of signaling device for the military that would allow troops that were spread out over a great distance to all move in consort when they saw the signal. His two signature inventions, though, were what he's most remembered by. The first was one of the WMDs of its day. This was known as the Juga crossbow, a repeating crossbow. Just as the name suggests, it was like the automatic machine gun of its day. It could shoot like two or three arrows at a time. Then there's one more thing that Zhuge Liang gets credit for. He supposedly invented manto. Manto is a kind of steamed wheat bread, sort of like a bun. You can get it all over China, but it's mostly a northern Chinese thing. Manto and baozi are sometimes used interchangeably, but my understanding is that a baozi is just some manto with a meat or, or a vegetable filling. As the story goes, when Zhuge Liang was leading his Shu Han troops during the southern campaign that sought to subdue the breakaway lands around Yunnan in 225. The one facing off against Zhuge Liang down there was Meng Huo. After that whole campaign was successfully finished, when the army was marching back up north to the lands of Shu, they came to a river that, because of the strong current, couldn't be crossed without soldiers and horses being swept away. But alas, one of the captured barbarians from these lands near the Yunnan-Burma border revealed to Zhuge Liang that his people had come up with their way to cross this river. He explained their way was simply to offer up a sacrifice to the gods and the river currents would slow to the you know extent that they could get to the other side and keep making their way back to Shu. The only thing was that the sacrifice involved chopping off the heads of 50 barbarians and tossing all 50 barbarian heads into the river. And this would appease the gods and, you know, problem solved. So Zhuge Liang took this all in and said, you know, he had enough killing after the southern campaign and wasn't going to kill another 50 men 
no matter conquered southern barbarians or Shuhan. So he called for some horses or cows or whatever was available to be butchered, and then the meat from the animals was to be placed inside of a rounded wheat bun that, after it was steamed, would resemble you know a human head close enough to the you know to trick the gods into believing that these were in fact fifty heads of barbarians. Now, there's something going on here that unless you speak Chinese, you're not going to get it. The word back then that was used for barbarian was man, second tone, and to, second tone, means head. So man to in Chinese sounds like barbarian head. But the sound for man, second tone, had many other meanings as well. One of the other Chinese characters pronounced second tone man is the character for, for a steam bun. And the second character, to, well, yeah, it still means head. So if you change out the two characters for man, the word would translate to either barbarian head or steamed bun head. But they sounded exactly the same. So, Zhuge Liang had 50 manto, or faux barbarian heads, thrown into the river. And as the story goes, that basically did the trick. And after they successfully crossed the river from that point on, these manto became an integral part of the northern Chinese diet. And somewhere along the way, the Chinese character was changed from barbarian man to steamed bun man. Manto today usually is just steamed bread, nothing else. If a manto has something in it, you know, then as I said, it's technically a ball. That's on a simple level, of course. My apologies if I angered a few hundred million people with that oversimplification. So that, my friends, is the general overview of one of the true luminaries from Chinese history. He goes by many names, Zhuge Liang, Kongming, Wolong, Wu Xianghao, Zhongwuho, and maybe some more. Those are the ones I came across. Anyone in modern times who exhibits amazing powers of organization and strategy in the Chinese world might be compared to Zhuge Liang. He was synonymous with clever strategy and outsmarting your opponent. His role in supporting Liu Bei and his impact on the times also allowed Zhuge Liang to be remembered as a statesman as well. The legend of Zhuge Liang grew mostly out of the 14th century novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms. This work attributed all kinds of amazing feats and events to Zhuge Liang that, you know, like most anything else from those olden days, is anyone's guess as far as how authentic they are. I hope no one minds that I left out the main meat of the story. That is, all the dozens and dozens of battles that took place between the generals of all the three kingdoms. If I mentioned one, that I'd have to mention them all, and I would have flooded you with names of people and places that would have your head spinning. Zhuge Liang was the one considered responsible for raising up Liu Bei and creating the third kingdom of Shu Han. He served this kingdom loyally till the end of his life and died in the service of the state. But in the end, it was a general from Cao Wei, Sima Yan, that finished off not only Sun Wu in the east, but Shu Han as well. Then, when those two competing kingdoms were done in, he cannibalized his own Cao Wei kingdom and founded the Jin dynasty instead. And with the founding of the Jin, China was unified, albeit for only 50 years. And so, 
we'll put a lid on it. And I'm going to bid you a fond farewell until next time. I'm going to be in Hong Kong December 13th to the 22nd. Looking forward to that. And I'm going to be back in China probably right after the Spring Festival, sometime in mid-February or thereabouts. Not sure where I will visit this time, but I'll let you know if I'm coming to a town near you. I might be in London end of January, still planning. I'll let you know on that. That's all I have for you. This is Laszlo Montgomery bidding you the fondest of farewells. I'm signing off from Claremont once again. 88 degrees right now and azure blue skies, L.A. pollution and all. Still kicking back and enjoying the last vestiges of sunny, warm SoCal weather. We're turning back the clocks in a couple of weeks, and that, to me, usually signals the end of the good weather. Not a fan of the cold, you know, having grown up in Chicago and all. Please, my Scandinavian listeners, don't take offense. Uh, Take care, everyone, and may it be our mutual fate that we join together again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.